0: Dialogue. A journal
1: of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Journal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Our podcast today features Dr. Thomas Simpson, author of American Universities and the Birth of Modern Mormonism, 1867-1940, to which received last year's Best Book Award from the Mormon History Association. In the closing decades of the 19th century, college-age Latter-day Saints began undertaking a remarkable intellectual pilgrimage from Utah to the nation's elite universities. One of the results of this outflow, Dr. Simpson posits, was the birth of a new modern Mormonism, one that was at home in the United States, but often at odds with itself. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll become a regular subscriber on iTunes. We also hope you'll subscribe to either the print or digital versions of Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought. We appreciate any financial support you can give, as we're dependent on the contributions of our readers and listeners. You can donate online at dialoguejournal.com. The following presentation was given at a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California on February 9, 2018. The next voice you hear will be Don Thurston introducing Dr. Simpson.
0: It's now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Thomas Simpson. And he goes by Tom. And uh, he was born and raised in Western New York. But he attended college at the University of Virginia where he received his bachelor's degree and his doctorate in classics and religious studies specializing in modern US religious history. He comes to us from New Hampshire where he lives with his wife and two children and where he teaches as an instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy many of you I'm sure are familiar with that school a very prestigious school where they have the average class sizes around 12 and the, the ratio between teachers and students is one teacher for every five students It'd be a wonderful place to get an education wouldn't it and he teaches a number of classes there religion philosophy and human rights in addition to teaching there he also serves as a coach for the JV baseball team. And he led uh, a number of students from the school for a semester abroad in uh, London, Stratford-on-Avon area a couple of years ago. From 2002 to 2004, he directed Emory University's Journeys of Reconciliation program, an interdisciplinary travel program focused on religion and conflict and peace building. His book, American Universities and the Birth of Modern Mormonism, chronicles the migration of 19th century scholars to the nation's elite universities and analyzes its subsequent influence on Mormon scholarship. It won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Award last year, which is no easy feat. And it's on that subject he'll be speaking to us tonight. So I'll turn the time over to Dr. Simpson.
2: Thank you so much, Dawn. For, uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, it's such an honor. This is a wonderful program that you have. The generosity and the, um, boy, the just the, the choices that you make uh, in terms of who you, I'm leaving myself out of this. I'm, I'm not being biased. Either. You choose wonderful people. I know Jana Reese well. You're in for a treat if you haven't had a chance to hear her before. Um, I know Patrick Mason well, just all, all kinds of people who you've brought in, and it just it, it's indicative of the quality uh, and sincerity of your thinking about uh, some, of the, some of the issues that really matter in, in church history and Mormon life. Can you all hear me, by the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You okay? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll project a little more. So let's see, a little bit, uh, people often ask me how I got interested in this topic and in this field uh, because I um, have never been a, a member of the LDS church uh, but I have an extensive family history in the church and so the, the connection, in ter- the, there are two ways that I come at this, one is through family history and then one is through academic interest in modern US religious history as Don said. The the family connection comes through my dad's side, and my dad was raised uh, in an LDS family. That's, that's an oversimplification. My maternal, uh, sorry, my paternal grandmother, uh, Venice Simpson, um, was uh, devout uh, her whole life, and then my, my um, paternal grandfather, Jerry Simpson, was more of an agnostic most of his adult life. Um, but at toward the end uh, the, so they they had a civil marriage uh, for most of their adult life, but toward the end he um, he went through the temple ceremony and, and embraced the church before he died he died young from from cancer that that ravaged him so I never met my my grandfather Simpson um, but uh, but the the family the, the family connections to Mormonism are on that side, and they are deep as i say uh if you Kind of start tracing things through my grandmother Simpson. Um, her eight great grandparents were all in Nauvoo, uh, and then the the ancestry goes back farther to to Western New York um, and to the you know to the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties. Uh, some of the first converts in my family were there. So I um, have this lineage and heritage in the church, um, and also a real kinship with. Um, members of my generation and of my dad's generation so I grew up as a child uh, some of the the most important trips and treks uh, that my family would take would be out west um, to Utah and sometimes even uh, here to Southern California to visit with extended family Um, and I was just talking with Jackie about Disneyland the first and only time I ever went to Disneyland (laughs) And so, uh, so uh, my grandmother Simpson was a brilliant woman and, uh, and also a, a playful one in many ways, and she would offer us grandkids um, a chance to do some kind of special graduation trip for our high school graduation, and one a, a, an option she offered me that I took her up on was to fly out from Buffalo, fly from <laughs> Western New York to, uh, to Salt Lake and do a road trip from Salt Lake, uh, let's see if I can reconstruct the itinerary. It was Salt Lake to Zion and Bryce to Vegas to Tijuana to <laughs> Disneyland. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with, with reunions with the Mormon relatives all along the way. But I, re- I still remember my, um, uh, my, my aunt, uh, Misa, who was originally from Finland, um, saying, you know, when we went to Zion and Bryce, she said, you're going to see the works of God before you see the works of man, you know, as we went out to Las Vegas, <laughs> and so it just there's this playfulness in the family, and just a deep love. I have cousins of mine who, um, on the Simpson side, who are Latter Day Saints, who I think of as as big brothers, who are some of the coolest people in the world to me. Who, are, um, and and so I, you know, something that something that struck me as odd as I as I grew up and as I started going through my higher education in the South was um, encountering a culture of real hostility toward Mormonism in the, in the Deep South. Um, and so for the first, it was really, I think, when I was in graduate school at Emory for a couple of years, um, where I started hearing people speaking of Mormonism as a cult and as something kind of unorthodox and something kind of deviant when it comes to scripture and the scriptural canon. And that was painful uh, to me and, and curious to me. and. Um, and so I, I wanted to know more about where some of that historical hostility came from. And, um, and then as I got more and more specialized in U.S. religious history and more and more focused on U.S. religious history, I started getting uh, more and more interested in the question of how Mormonism had, had transformed from such a persecuted small sect uh, in upstate New York um, to being um, a global faith essentially how it how had it not only survived but also thrived in the modern world um, and there 's nothing like uh, being uh, an anxious perfectionist who wants to do well on tests um, to get you motivated in a way too because one of my I knew that one of my doctoral exam questions in u s religious history was likely to be you know, it was likely to entail um, giving some kind of explanation for how Mormonism had pulled this off, how had Mormonism evolved and transformed in such, such a powerful way. Other older graduate students had told me, get ready for that question. <laughs> uh, so, so I really took it seriously, and I really I wanted to know more, and, um, and, and so I, I did as well as I could at that stage of my graduate education, but then when it came time shortly afterward to pick a dissertation topic, this was 15 years ago now, I started thinking about well how I I started thinking that I might really be interested in diving into uh, archive. I knew I wanted to do an archival project. I knew I wanted to do original research that was related to something that was generating a lot of fruitful scholarship. I had read Jan Ship's introduction to Mormonism um, in uh, in a graduate seminar. Um, and had read some, some other work that I liked a lot uh, in the field. Um, and so I thought, why don't I, why don't I see what's out there? And, and just by good fortune, um, I, I started by looking in the University of Virginia's library stacks, I found Davis Bitton's Thick Guide to Mormon Diaries and Autobiographies. And I I wanted to know what was going going on in Mormon culture, especially around the the Woodruff Manifesto of 1890. What was was the reaction to um, the official uh, um, abandonment, essentially? Uh, I know it took a long time for it to kind of play out, but but the official abandonment of polygamy as, um, as something that the church had tenaciously defended. A lot of people had risked. Uh, a great deal to uphold that principle and to live that life, um, and I thought there must have been there must have been uh, you know, a, a whole wide range of reactions to that that dramatic shift in church policy and that that desire to kind of make peace with the federal government uh, in order to um, achieve more security and stability as a church in the in the long run and in the, the temporal realm. Uh, So I got especially interested in that transitional period of Mormon history which uh, Thomas Alexander and others have written so beautifully about. Um, And what I started finding in the Bitten Guide to Diaries and Autobiographies was uh, a kind of a critical mass, I would say, it started to feel to me, or or a cadre of uh, students who had left the region, who had left Utah and Idaho especially um, to go to... Prominent universities these emerging universities uh, outside the region, so especially the University of Michigan in the 1870s um, Cornell uh, Columbia a little later the University of Chicago a little later in the 1890s Stanford in the 1890s Harvard in the 1890s um, and and I didn't Know what to make of that, so I was really really interested in this question of why even before Woodruff's manifesto, even before this formal and official kind of accommodation with federal authority, what were Mormon students seeing in university education that was appealing to them? Um, and then eventually I, I figured out that they were actually getting, in the in many of the first cases, kind of set apart by Brigham Young for academic migration, for a kind of academic mission in a way saying, you know, it's, don't necessarily proselytize when you go east, but go get this, get this education, <laughs> soak it up, and bring it back, uh, and, and bring it back so that we can um, use it to help build the kingdom of God in the, in the Mountain West. Um, so uh, so the first real wave of migration, this, this has to do with the periodization. Um, 1867 is really when Brigham Young starts to authorize Academic migration, um, and it's and he's, he's got an interesting rationale for it that I talk about in the first chapter there. But he's, he's he had a lot of um, faith in the benefits of education. Uh, education had practical benefits in this world, he thought, of course, and also in the hereafter. He said, "This is kind of like the um, human life is a is a kind of school um, that we go through in order to um, in, in order to." Pre- prepare for the highest uh, spiritual blessings and, and responsibilities. Uh, but he did have significant concerns about the effect that prolonged education abroad, as they called it, right? Uh, it was the 19th century parlance to, to think of anything outside of your home region as, as studying abroad. So that was one of my favorite early things about the project was these, uh, when, when Mormons went to Michigan They were going, they were studying abroad. They were, (laughs) that was the language they used at the time. Um, But it really was, I mean, if you think about transportation at the time, you were, they they were going far afield. Uh, They they were definitely going far from home and taking a big risk in terms of um, pursuing education and finding community and finding a sense of home. Um, So it it really, one one of my main arguments uh, about, this generation of students that starts to go on academic migrations and missions uh, in the late 19th century is that they experience this uh, as a kind of pilgrimage. They're journeying far from home uh, and in most cases experiencing a profound transformation of consciousness and identity. And the, the central thesis of the book is that a real sense of Mormon belonging in the United States takes root through this academic migration. That universities are the only institutional and cultural space in the United States where Mormons can feel welcome, can feel at home, can feel a a sense of hospitality, a sense of dignity. Um, And there's no other US institution or cultural space that's offering Mormons that kind of freedom and that kind of um, that kind of opportunity to become their best intellectual selves to become. And, and so the, the students figure out that, that these experiences in universities can become uh, transformational in the precise sense that universities are offering them a chance to be both uh, good Mormons, devout Mormons, and, uh, and excel in the realm of higher education. Um, so a lot of the um, uh, the elders from the pioneer generation um, were often suspicious. Were often worried about uh, about uh, universities as breeding grounds for apostasy. Um, that they you know there are infidelity uh, in the in the sense of um, rational skepticism things like that. Brigham Young was worried about worried that students might become uh, skeptical in terms of. Uh, uh, rationalism he was worried about the scientific naturalism they would expose they would be exposed to and he was also worried about um, them being exposed to capitalistic theories of economics uh, so he didn't want them he didn't want them exposed to that because this was the time of the united order right you know, the, the heyday of the united order um, so he re- he wanted more communitarian um, economics uh, to be shaping their lives but so so there was some suspicion some fear that students would be led astray Um, in their time away. But also what really undercuts um, or or balances out some of that fear and suspicion is a tremendous pride in the accomplishments of the students. So, um, and I've talked with um, students, I've I've talked with people like Spencer Fluman and Patrick Mason about this and Jana Reese, um, but there's still I think some of the sense even today that if you come from Utah, And you, if you come from kind of the the core geographic uh, center of LDS culture as it's been historically understood, um, and you succeed in the Ivy League, you make it at a at a Harvard or at a Cornell or a Columbia or you know beyond that, at Michigan or Stanford. uh, There's just there's tremendous pride. Um, So one of the things I say in the first chapter is that. That in in the culture at the time, a lot of the, the folks in the pioneer generation condemned the world but craved its praise. Right? So it's there's, 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 it's Babylon, right? It's Babylon. Don't get don't get um, caught up in the culture, caught up in the in the ways of Babylon. Um, but you can you can have a little sojourn in Babylon, but then come back and and um, and bring the benefits of your education to us. But don't don't get polluted by your time abroad. Uh, And the students really figure out, again, how to make the most of their time in universities and still feel that they're being um, uh, devoutly Mormon, uh, being devout Latter-day Saints. And that the way they can reconcile that, in most cases, has to do with um, really feeling at home with Mormon uh, doctrinal ideas about um, eternal progression and the the ideas like the glory of God is intelligence. Um, and ideas uh, uh, that, again, the, the, even Brigham Young's own idea of the, that life is a is a school, life is a kind of education and preparation for the kinds of blessings and responsibilities you will have in the afterlife. So um, in a really genuine and sincere way, a lot of the students thought of their intellectual and educational growth as a kind of spiritual growth. They thought that was perfectly harmonious um, and perfectly consistent. Um, so that's the first phase. And, um, and one of the central concepts uh, that, I, that plays out in the rest of the history here, and I'll show you um, some pictures. Let's see, there's, there's Brigham. Um, early on, there are a lot of women involved early on in the migration, um, especially getting training in medicine. Um, often uh, going to places like the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. And in some of these early cases, um, there were women who were able to pursue higher education because they were part of um, plural marriages. Um, and so this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, these are the wives of, uh, of Milford Ship. Uh, with two P's, and the two women at the bottom, um, Ellis Reynolds Ship and Maggie Curtis Ship, Maggie's on the left and Ellis is on the right, um, kind of took turns leaving Salt Lake City uh, to go get a medical degree, an MD, at the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia while their children were being cared for by. The sister wives. So it's this—it's this really striking and strange from our perspective now. Con- confluence of um, some thi- of forces and factors that seem progressive in terms of gender and uh, um, and archaic, uh, <laughs> right? And so um, and and I think the express. One of the reasons I love the picture so much is that I think the expressions um, convey something about the frustrations those women felt uh, with <laughs> with the with the situation they were in often that it, um, that there you know sometimes a, a new um, a new wife would show up on the scene uh, unannounced and <laughs> and you know it would complicate things financially and, and so sometimes the like sometimes the um, what the communitarian ethic really helped them have enough resources to go pursue higher education, but sometimes, you know, if, if more people were added to the family unit, that could put a real strain on those resources as well and, and and produce real tensions between what I see as a kind of an authentic feminist interest in higher education and political involvement um, and also a commitment to Latter-day Saint doctrinal principles about marriage. And so there's just... The stories about them are so fascinating and so rich, and you get just very um, sincere and genuine and complex reflections about what that was like at that time from them, from their diaries. Um, so that's uh, th- that's what hooked me, I think, ultimately on this project was was reading some of the, this unpublished correspondence, um, these honest reflections about the tensions that people think uh, that people uh, felt historically. Um, and that's to me what makes history so engaging and so interesting is that um, that human beings are never two dimensional right uh, Human beings have such complex thoughts and feelings about um, about uh, various uh, uh, forces that affect them in their lives and um, I just there's an incredible wealth of material that people have kept over time that's available. So mainly in the archives, which archives? Uh, BYU Special Collections had a lot of these uh, collections. Um, The uh, LDS uh, Church Library in Salt Lake, uh, Utah State Historical Society, um, the libraries at uh, the University of Utah and Utah State University. Um, Just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful archival material. Wonderful stories. And I think that's that's what... um, if you're interested in the book, uh, that's I, part of, the, I think, the, the gift that I wanted to offer Latter-day Saints, um, and sort of my ancestors and my relatives and, and other people in the community, is it's it's a kind of genealogy of Mormon intellectual curiosity and Mormon um, educational migration. Uh, and so and I imagine that, you know, your own stories, your own life stories intersect with the stories of people in this book in some really fascinating ways that I probably haven't that I probably don't even know. Um, So this is Romania Pratt, um, one of the women who pursued medical education in the 1870s. And she's a pivotal person in the book and part of what I want to do with this book is is restore what I think is um, women's rightful place in Mormon intellectual history. She's so important to me because, um, for a long, t- for uh, you know, in Brigham Young's mind, there was some wariness again about borrowing too heavily from outside uh, sources and outside teaching. And there's there's a strong strain in Mormonism of what uh, U.S. religious historians call populism, and it's not political populism in terms of what we often talk about related to. Um, political movements like with uh, William Jennings Bryan thing but um, or, or even today with uh, with President Trump um, but the uh, the religious form of populism has to do with um, exalting the wisdom of ordinary people right so uh, so populism is about saying that ordinary people have access to everything they need to know when it comes to salvation um, and this is a very strong Idea in Mormonism that, that goes right to the heart of who Joseph Smith was. Right, you don't need formal education. You don't need um, special class privilege or something to be uh, chosen by God to be a conduit of divine revelation. Right? It's a pretty strong idea. And, and Joseph, there's some I think beautiful ideas in the Book of Mormon about how um, you know how manipulative uh, elites can be. I think about this in terms of where I teach. I teach it in elite. New England boarding school, and Joseph Smith had some really, I think, beautiful insights about how um, elite uh, scholars, academics, can can use their scholarly attainments to kind of lord over uh, people who are less privileged, people who are less um, less uh, who have less access to those uh, those elite uh, institutions. Of education. Um, so there's a strong there's a strong desire um, and a strong tradition in Mormonism of uh, affirming that everybody has access to all the, the saving knowledge that they need, um, and so that, that can lead to some suspicion of outside um, scholarship. It can lead to some suspicion of uh, outside expertise. Romania Pratt, I think, is is a pivotal pivotal figure in kind of Wrenching the culture in a little bit of a new direction in terms of saying there are, there are circumstances where we need to Acknowledge that we don't have all the knowledge that we need We need to acknowledge that we don't have all the expertise that we need Her special concern had to do with women's health and children's health and she was saying if we don't learn uh, the latest techniques in medicine if we don't have the best available knowledge in medicine people we love are gonna die. People that, you know, and we've seen it happen, especially in our rural communities. So she, in 1877, I wanna read you a passage. Um, Brigham Young has just died. Brigham Young has died in the, in the spring of 1877. And Romania Pratt comes back to Salt Lake City um, with her, with her MD.
1: Tom, do you know? Uh, yeah, oh sorry, yeah, please. what her relationship is? Either
2: Orson or Harley Pratt that's an excellent question. I can't think of it off the top of my head but let' let's let's, um, let's circle back on that I'll, I'll find out if, if one of us doesn't know right off the bat. Um, but I think Romania Pratt's significance um, has to do with really softening, this populist standard, even, even to the point of um, dismantling it in some key ways. Um, it'll resurface later, I say that populism, um, that, that suspicion of outside learning, that suspicion of outside expertise, will crop up periodically in Mormon history, but I think Romania Pratt did as much as anyone to to say how dangerous it could be, and so I want to read you a little bit of what she wrote um, in 1877, just after um, Brigham Young had died. So. Um, Here's uh, I'll read you a little passage from the book here. That this is this is my voice first, and then I'll give you the, the good stuff. I'll give you Romania Pratt. Um, so it's so I'm saying um, in the minds of Mormon authorities, questions persisted about whether a doctor's scientific expertise could be reconciled with divine revelations about healing. Romania Pratt knew it. So in 1879, this is a little later than where I was just talking about. So in 1879. Confident that her fellow saints considered her exemplary, she boldly offered Mormons an anti-populist rationale for professional training in medicine. In the pages of the Woman's Exponent, the church's official magazine for women, Dr. Pratt argued that when it came to the health of the saints, the church's populism was naive, obsolete, and even dangerous. She pleaded with her sisters and brothers in the faith to make room for, quote, cultivated skill, reason, and progress And here are her words. She says, It's neither safe nor right for anyone with a smattering of knowledge picked up promiscuously to undertake the practice of medicine and go forth to hold the balance of life and death in their unskillful hands, too often unnecessarily resulting in the desolation of hearts and homes. Our reason, the greatest gift of God to man, was given us for cultivation And our life here on earth presents a series of opportunities of transforming circumstances into eternal knowledge. Progress is the keystone of heavenly thought and plan. And true medical knowledge can never corrode the soul or unfit us for usefulness in any way. It is said in holy writ that faith without works is dead. And it is a matter of correct observation that good, intelligent, common sense work is very frequently a most excellent subordinate to faith. And I just go on to say, like like any like any effective proponent of reform, Pratt owned the tradition she dared to modify. So she knew she knew what core Latter Day Saint principles she could draw on to (coughs) make an argument for opening um, opening the church up to outside expertise when it came to the the uh, the practice of medicine. Um, One of my favorite. Um, outcomes of this project uh, that, that warms my heart in a great way is um, there's a graduate student at the University of Utah who read this book and he's a graduate of BYU and he as soon as he read the book he got in touch and I'm not sure where the process is right now but he got in touch with people at BYU to say we should have a Romania Pratt scholarship for women in science um, and I think it's, I think it's happening. I think it's, it's getting some traction. Um, so again, like these are, these are some stories that, that really are uh, incredible, um, and uh, are inspiring. I, I think some people to, to take seriously um, women's contributions to this history. So that's Romania Pratt. She's um, great. Yeah, she,
0: she was married to Parley oh. P. Pratt's eldest oh. son, Parley P. Pratt Jr. Bye. I was and then they divorced. Yes. And then she married Charles Penrose.
2: Exactly. Yes, she has a long... She is Esther Benel, Romania Penrose Pratt, I think is her full name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <right>. yes. <laughs> yes. And among yeah. all her other accomplishments, she yeah. had
0: seven children.
2: Yes, yeah. So that's... Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's faci- fascinating stories. Fascinating stories. Um, and so the Romania Pratt... Contributes, and then uh, another really important phenomenon in the 1880s, while the federal government is carrying out its raid against Mormons, driving Mormons into into exile, essentially driving them underground, um, a whole cadre of students is going to the University of Michigan. Uh, They're a fascinating group to study. They don't agree on much of anything. Uh, Benjamin Clough Jr. is one of the key figures in that movement. Uh, Sorry? Benjamin Benjamin Clough Jr., C L U F F, and he becomes. Mexican. Uh, exactly. Williams. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And also the, uh, he becomes, um, pres- he, he follows Carl Mazur as president of the Brigham Young Academy uh, and, uh, and, and is there just as Brigham Young Academy is becoming uh, Brigham Young University. And so he's an incredibly important figure. Uh, because he ends up inviting a lot of uh, national experts in education some of the leading educators of the day to uh, Provo for summer institutes uh, and so he's uh, Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard comes to to Salt Lake City and to Provo in uh, 1892 and Charles Eliot tells people what a, a great bunch of Mormon students he has at Harvard, and uh, there's there's some controversy about that because it gets picked up by the Associated Press, and and there's a little bit of a, um, a kerfuffle about uh, you know there, there seems to be a Mormon colony at Harvard, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and this is how an American um, and Charles Elliot defends this is an amazing moment. Charles Elliot says publicly. Um, mormons should be it, it, yeah, i think mormons are very much like the puritans in their commitment to uh, um, in their commitment to uh, realizing a religious way of life that has uh, that has education at its center and um, and they you know they've been persecuted and they've been resilient and they, you know and uh, and it's it's a really um, soul-stirring moment for Mormon students who are at Michigan and at Harvard to have somebody of that stature praise them in that way. So Benjamin Clough, I think, uh, you know, for, for exactly the reasons you mentioned, Benjamin Clough has been difficult to enshrine. Uh, like, you, you wouldn't want to, because, yeah, the, the polygamy, this uh, ill-fated Mexican expedition, um, so you're, you're not going to find buildings named after him in Provo, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, but but he's, he's incredibly important in terms of affirming uh, the um, the value of education as a spiritual opportunity. Um, and so he, you know, when I talk about the tradition of populism and the suspicion of, of outside expertise, um, outside opportunities for education, Benjamin Clough goes so far as to say in the 1890s that it's a sin for Latter-day Saints to miss the opportunities that higher education offers. Um, so he's reversing the populist logic entirely, turning it on its head and he's saying, if you don't take advantage of the opportunities that are out there, that's, that's a kind of spiritual laziness um, and it's, it's, it's actually sin, he uses the language of sin. Um, so he's, he's an important figure uh, before his um, demise in many ways. Uh, and so, um, he's incredibly important in terms of bringing, um, bringing leading educators uh, to, to Utah in the 1890s. Um, here's another wonderful uh, figure from, from that time period, of the late 19th century. This is Martha Hughes Cannon, who a lot of you have probably heard of, um, who was, who had the M.D., um, who uh, ran for political office, first female state senator, right, in the, in the U.S., um, and uh, she ran against her husband. And, and beat him. Uh, right. I th- I'm, my understanding is that they both could have won. They both, like, she didn't, you know, she didn't win necessarily at the expense of him. But, <laughs> but still, she beat her husband, her, her uh, polygamous husband. And, um, and, yeah, she's an incredibly, incredibly accomplished person, multiple uh, advanced degrees and uh, in that political career as well. So just, uh, there, um, there, there are a lot of Mormon students exploring every possible Opportunity at this time, and this this comes um, right as uh, right as Utah's uh, finally achieving statehood. So that is, I think, in 1896 when Utah achieved statehood, is a is a watershed moment in a lot of ways. Um, there's a kind of uh, what a, a kind of truce um, with the federal government that's very important in terms of, <coughs> of, the, of the, the external pressure relaxing. And this, in the book, I say that this is essentially a time when internal conflicts within Mormonism start to um, surpass or overtake um, conflicts with external authority and external um, coercive pressure. Uh, so the internal debates end up having a lot to do with... Um, oops, I should go back to that previous one. Um, the internal debates have a lot to do with um, is- issues like biblical criticism... Um, the historicity of the Mormon past, uh, modern scientific theories of evolution, um, uh, academic freedom, these kinds of issues, con- big controversies at BYU and the University of Utah in the early 20th century. Um, so the third chapter is called Evolution and Its Discontents uh, from 1896 to 1920. This is a picture, that the book's cover takes um, kind of the middle portion of this picture, this wonderful picture of uh, Latter Day Saints who were studying in Boston and Cambridge in 1893, um, and so the, mainly at uh, Harvard and MIT. Um, and some of the younger kids, uh, you had some who were going to the Boston Conservatory uh, for special musical training. And, um, and Jean Thatcher, who's there, the woman in the middle, was also a musician. Um, but mainly, you had Harvard and MIT students in this picture who were studying. Law, engineering, uh, again with this idea that they could bring practical um, benefits back to uh, Utah to help build infrastructures um, uh, of various kind, infrastructures of higher education, infrastructures of medicine, infrastructures of the legal profession. Brigham Young was uh, was very interested in having um, some of the some of the younger generation be trained as lawyers because there was such a ferocious legal assault on uh Mormon land holdings uh um business holdings and things like that so uh he wanted he wanted latter-day saints to be trained as lawyers so that they could defend the church against these attacks um so even though even though brigham young was (laughs) harbored a lot of suspicions about lawyers uh and their their character uh he said we need we need some of our own people to be trained as lawyers so so that happens at michigan that happens at, at harvard um by the eighteen nineties, places like that. So that's that's a picture I lo- I, I rejoiced um, and, and almost wept when I found this picture. It's beautiful. If you ever want to go see it at uh, the Church History Library in Salt Lake, it's huge. It's it's just it's it might be it might be about half the size. Um, if, when you when you hold it, um, it's a beautiful, large portrait of those of those students. Um. There's, so, in the early 20th century, when you have these controversies over academic freedom, over um, biblical scholarship, over uh, scientific evolution, um, I say this is when you start to see a new breed of Mormon scholar, kind of what we might think of as a 20th century Mormon intellectual. And that's anybody recognize him? Yeah, that's a young John A. Whitzo, that's yeah, who became a general authority, and also the president of the University of Utah, um, president of the Agricultural College of Utah, which later became Utah State. Um, so just an incredibly important figure in the history of, uh, of higher education. One of the first Mormons uh, to, to earn a PhD. Um, he was a, a scientist by training um, and, uh, and had a, just a wonderful time at Harvard. He, he writes in his autobiography about how Harvard was kind of every childhood dream of his coming true in terms of being surrounded by that kind of faculty and that kind of um, wisdom. He had a chemistry professor at Harvard who was instrumental in helping him understand that he could reconcile his religious belief with, uh, with being a modern scientist. Um, and so he had a, a professor named Josiah Cook who's who was fond of saying uh, that all of nature is but God's <coughs> speech, uh, and so there's nothing. Um, and Ellis Reynolds Ship, before Witzel, Ellis Reynolds Ship, who had gone to the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia, said something similar. She said, um, "All truth is from God." You know, there's this confidence that it, you know, as you investigate um, scientific realities, you are you're investigating the nature of God and the nature of reality. And so there's really, there's no danger, per se, of, um, you know, of, of going too far on the road of scientific inquiry and investigation. Um, later Tom, on, oh, yeah, by the, way, the, the good thing about Witzel is yeah. that he was, he was Norwegian,
1: so he would be welcome as an immigrant even today in our country. Yes! <laughs> he's, he's not from one of those word-I-can't-say countries. Yes,
2: he's, he's, <laughs> the, he's, <laughs> he's of the right stock, Which is, it's you know it's fortunate that you bring that up, Morris. I, um, one of the, part of the scientific culture at the time was, um, and you see this with the, the, the Mormons who are, who are most accomplished in the biological sciences um, are getting caught up in the broader early 20th century interest in eugenics and, and ide- these kind of quasi-scientific ideas of racial superiority uh, being tied to you know, intellectual superiority and civilizational superiority. Um, so it's interesting that, that when, as, as Mormons in many ways are learning how to play the game at the highest level, the intellectual, you know, how to how to achieve at the highest level intellectually. Um, that brings a lot of benefits uh, to Mormon culture, but there are, I mean, that that should be said. There are, I think, legitimate concerns about where that inquiry might take you, and and um, and sometimes I'm, you know, I I think some of the some of the concerns are overblown and maybe a little overheated, but. Uh, but people recognized at the time that, that science could be taken in a problematic direction. Uh, and eugenics being, I think, the most prominent example from that time. Uh, people were taking it very seriously. And, um, and you heard in the introduction that I, I have a lot of background and a lot of training from the University of Virginia. And the University of Virginia in the mid-20th century was one of the centers, one of the leading centers of eugenics uh, Lot. and and I teach a course on the Holocaust now maybe you know this but um, it's just it's horrifying when, when you see that Hitler was looking at what was going on in the United States and he's saying look at uh, look notice how 22 states have passed sterilization laws you know and uh, and he's saying we can do this too he's borrowing from US policy um, along these lines so um, so it's it's so the, the scientific advancements are extraordinarily beneficial on the whole. Uh, you know, uh, Witso is is doing so much to, to bring modern techniques of uh, farming and you know extension school education. Um, it's it's it's, uh, it's incredible, but um, but there are some uh, some downsides. Uh, I think in terms of um, in terms of assimilating. Uh, to To what is is prevailing in the, the academic culture of the time um, so that's that 's an interesting story there's some again some graduate students at the University of Utah who know more about this than I do who are looking at that history of um, of eugenics as it relates to um, Mormon scientists uh, but yeah so witso is as uh, I, I think you know um, an embodiment of this new type of Mormon scholar who's who's playing at the highest level and and bringing all kinds of uh, uh, wisdom uh, and training and expertise uh, back to Utah. That and, it, and he spends and may, maybe you know he spends the rest of his life really tr- uh, optimistically proclaiming that we can reconcile uh, the best of science with the best of LDS faith. So he has some books like uh, "Evidences and Reconciliations." news called. He's like trying to help younger, um, uh, educationally minded Mormons navigate that terrain. He had a brother. Maybe you know he had a brother named Osborne who also went to Harvard, who was more uh, trained in the humanities, um, was an English professor eventually at the University of Utah. And Osborne writes a really interesting set of articles at this time for um, the, uh, I can't remember if it's the improvement, I think it's for the improvement era. Um, and he's, he's, talking, he's talking younger Mormons through what college can be like and how it can be, uh, um, what, it can be a challenge for one's faith and here's how, you can, um, here's how you can reconcile it. So there's some optimism there. But it's not long before some, some strong controversies that you probably know about from BYU's history start to emerge. Um, in 1911, some professors who are bringing back some training in psychology and some training in scientific evolution start um, getting in some hot water. Um, there's, and there's kind of a pitched battle in some ways between some students who really admire the professors and trustees of BYU who are saying you're going too fast uh, too soon with with these ideas of evolution and um, there's some real tension that emerges about uh, whether scholars are going to lead young Mormons astray um, so that's emerging pretty early on in the uh, in the 20th century um, all the while that Whitso is trying to be very optimistic and say no 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 we can we can harmonize these things we can reconcile um, but there's a younger, even younger than Whitso. There's a younger generation that's that's really starting to push the boundaries more and uh, and be more provocative in some ways. And there's some firings at BYU and resignations. And then there's an academic freedom controversy at 19, in 1915 that draws the attention of the American Association of University Professors. And so there's a real question about like to what extent the church wants to be committed to um, sort of. What scholarly inquiry wherever it will lead in that old Jeffersonian sense. Um, But but WITSO is optimistic that they can be reconciled um, and it's even as some storm clouds are gathering. Uh, It's at this time that the president of Brigham Young uh, in uh, 1915, I think George Brimhall, says the the motto for BYU now is the school follows the church. And maybe you know that phrase a little bit. they saying that's just, you know, we can't have um, teachers kind of coming in and, and teaching, uh, offering things to, to young people that are at odds with official doctrine or raising questions about official doctrine. Um, just end of story the school follows the church. Okay. Uh, so that's around 1915, and then, but you know, whenever I talk about kind of uh, maybe scholars pushing things a little bit and maybe some backlash from the, the hierarchy or some reaction from the hierarchy, these moments never get fixed or entrenched for for terribly long. There's always, everything's contested, everything's fluid, everything's kind of open to debate, and that's, again, what part of what I love about the story is that um, if, if, it, if it ever seems like one side is winning out, there's always there's always representation of other voices, There's all, there are always people with diverse um, points of view. And this is something I try to stress with my students, that religious, you can't generalize about uh, religious traditions because religious traditions are made up of, of people who have their, who have unique identities and complex thoughts. So right as, you know, if you have a George Brimhall who is saying at BYU the school follows the church, it's only, five, six years later that Franklin Harris, who's pictured here, comes in as president, and he says the most important thing for BYU is to pursue accreditation, and we're gonna pursue accreditation by hiring as many faculty with PhDs as we can, right? <laughs> and we're gonna make this a real university, um, and so it's really, a, it's it's like you know US presidential administrations. They can be very, you know, things can change very quickly, and so Franklin Harris is very open to um, outside education. He wants as many people with advanced degrees as possible teaching on the BYU faculty. Um, and you remember I mentioned that there was a lot of controversy about teaching scientific evolution, which you would kind of expect for the time. Um, maybe you remember the, the John Scopes trial, the monkey trial was in 1925. So it's a like BYU was dealing with this even before there was sort of a national reckoning about it. Um, but in that same year, in 1925, there was... Um, a Stanford-trained zoologist named Vasco Tanner, who Paris hired. Um, and Vasco Tanner said, I think it's really important that we teach scientific evolution, and he made some headway on that. And partly the argument was, again, had to do with uh, the um, training in medicine. Uh, the part of the logic at the time was, if we want our best and brightest to be able to practice medicine, we want our best and brightest to be able to go to the best medical schools and if they're not exposed to scientific evolution, um, they're not going to be able to get admitted to the best medical schools. They're just they're not they're not going to be taken seriously as medical, as future medical practitioners. Um, so there was a practical logic in some ways saying you know and this is what students had been saying back in 1911 was if, if we don't get these ideas are out there these ideas are dictating the, the standards of higher education at the best universities. We need, to, we need people from our faith to be training us in them, exposing us to them um, so that, that we don't have to go elsewhere um, and get the information um, that way. So it's a big debate about what, what can students handle, what should they be exposed to, what's dangerous, what's healthy, um, a lot of, lot of uh, debates about the best um, pedagogical approaches and the best way to raise Mormon um, so that's Franklin S. Harris, who was very open. He was um, president starting in um, uh, 1920 or 1921, um, right at the beginning of this last um, this last chapter. Um, and then I, I give J. Reuben Clark a lot of prominence in the story as someone who, uh, after after a lot of um, exploration, again a lot of out migration academically, and and people coming back with. Um, with the latest theories in a range of fields. Um, Jay Rubin Clark uh, reacted strongly to what he thought was an excessive uh, reliance on um, outside uh, expertise in disciplines um, like sociology and disciplines, even the academic study of religion. And this is what's fascinating to me. So you remember when I, we were talking about populism and this idea that every, every person has access to all the knowledge they need when it comes to salvation. Um, the mo- one of the most interesting academic migrations for me, and, and one of the most significant ones I think historically for Mormonism is in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, a cadre of students starts going to the University of Chicago's Divinity School for training in theology and biblical studies church history meaning the history of Christianity as a whole Uh, and so all of a sudden there's a recognition Adam S. Bennion and and John A. Witso and Joseph Merrill and others high up in the, the church education system are saying we don't know enough about the Bible we don't know enough about the history of Christianity we don't know enough about theology we need to we need some of the experts outside to train us in this and so we can do better religious education at places like the, uh, the emerging LDS institutes. Um, like, so, we, so we can answer the questions of college students better, LDS college students, um, and we can train them better. But it's really the first time, I th- in many ways, in, in LDS history where there's a, a, there's a new acknowledgement that maybe we don't have the exp- all the expertise we need in religion, right? That, that's new. Like, before it was, we don't have all the expertise we need in law, or in, uh, medicine, or, right, or engineering, but now it's saying, like, we don't have all the expertise we need in, uh, religion, which is a remarkably humble, um, move to make, right? And, and, and as I say, it's about as far from the populist position as you can get. And I think Jay Rubin Clark recognized that, and he was worried about it. He was, um, and, and it, it, that, that, open, that radical openness to outside expertise in religion prompts a radical response from J. Reuben Clark, a radically conservative response, which I call a neo-populist response. It goes even beyond kind of original Mormon populism and to the point where J. Reuben Clark and Heber Grant, the president of the church at the time, uh, are so frustrated with... Uh, what they see as kind of the arrogance of students from Chicago coming back and, and bringing these theories back about church history and, and biblical studies and, and things, um, that they start to say things like, we don't care what anybody else outside the church thinks about anything, right? <laughs> we don't, like, st- and it really pushes them into these really strong statements that have kind of a chilling effect on... Mormon scholars at the time, because Clark, as you, as you probably know, was a, a general authority at the time. Um, but again, so I, I, I give him a lot of prominence, and I say, I end the book at 1940 because I say this, this struggle between Clark and some of the younger scholars at the time, um, really, it's a struggle that plays out in many ways up to the present day in terms of um, what does it mean to be a devout Latter-day Latter- Saint? What does it mean to be a genuine intellectual? Uh, what is it, these, these questions still play out today. But even um, at the time, I was talking about this with some folks at dinner. Um, even when Jay Reuben Clark is as, as strong and as forceful and as authoritative as he is on this question, there are still these other Currents um, and and maybe you know you probably know a lot about uh, David McKay David O. McKay as well that that they they were active and prominent at the same time and um, and even within the, the presidency and so and and so Clark at, at the time that he was staking out a, a pretty radically populist or neo populist position um, and and kind of trying to to hold the scholars in check David David O. McKay was offering really vital um, An open encouragement to scholars at the very same time and, and even, even as J. Ruben Clark is, is worried about the effects that these students are going to have on the church education system, BYU is forming a religion department for the first time or a genuinely academic religion department for the first time. Um, and John A. Witzel was still trying to bring everybody together, you know. <laughs> um, and so there's no, I, as I say, I, I kind of, I give J. Reuben Clark's, um, his, his speech called uh, The charted Course of the Church in Education, which, um, which uh, people who teach in the church schools to, still get um, issued as, a, as kind of a guideline for, for what um, constitutes um, godly teaching and devout teaching. Um, there's still, there's just, there's a lot of debate, there's a lot, a lot that's being hashed out, a lot that's being contested, um, and and a lot of those, I think, those tensions and struggles still very much uh, play out today, but as I say, one of the main things that I wanted to offer to audiences like you and to readers like you is this sense that basically wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in these debates, you have kindred. You have, you have, um, you have a long history of, and, and I think that's from the feedback I've gotten from Latter-day Saints, um, so one of the most common things they'll tell me is, is just I, I they'll, they'll say, I, ju- I never knew about so many of these people. I never knew that people had a lot of the same experiences that I feel like I've had in higher education, or a lot of the same questions that I've had, going all the way back to the 1860s and the 1870s. Um, you know, I'll still see on social media uh, occasionally, you know, some debates crop up about scientific evolution and whether whether it's appropriate um, for students to study it. it. And I just, I would love for more and more people in the church to know how long um, Mormons have been thinking about scientific evolution and and wrestling with it. And, um, you know, it's just, I think, you know, John A. Whitzel all the way back in the 1890s, you know, is is having that struggle at Harvard and he finds really important guidance from the faculty there. Um, So I think, I guess I'll close with this. I think the the main the main argument that I make is that basically universities allowed this rising generation of Mormon students and the generation after them. It allowed them to see the United States not as Babylon, but as home. Uh, and it's that that universities allowed them to feel that they genuinely belonged and that they could be respected, uh, that they could be included, they could be welcomed. And uh, no other cultural space, no other institutional space was offering young Latter-day Saints that opportunity. And so even when some some people in the pioneer generation were saying, you're going to go to Babylon for just a short time and then you're going to come back and you're not going to be influenced, they start the students start talking back. The students start saying, um, no, it's, it doesn't feel like Babylon. It doesn't feel like enemy turf. Um, these professors really care about us. Uh, they, and and uh, the experience is, is so transformative for them that I think they can start to imagine that being a loyal citizen of the United States won't be um, a way of selling their soul. I think that was the pioneer concern was if you, like the United States has persecuted us, they've hunted us down, they've ridiculed us. Um, Martin Marty, the great um, scholar of US religious history uh, who was at Chicago for so many years said, He he argues that Mormons were the most despised large group, cultural group in the 19th century of the United States. Um, And so that was the question that drove me all this time, was how did this group go from being so despised, so persecuted, so ridiculed and maligned, to feeling um, not just patriotic, but uh, ultra patriotic uh, and And so that took me into this history of of Mormon um, academic migration, Mormon experience in universities. And um, maybe I'll end there and open it up to your questions. Yeah, oh my gosh, I see lots of hands already. All right, all right. I saw this first. Yeah.
1: These uh, Eastern students that you talk about, uh, do you have any information about uh, how many of them or what percentage actually went back to Utah? to? utilize their experience? I mean, was
2: Brigham Young's uh, yeah. purpose accomplished, do you think? That's a great question. So first, in terms of the numbers, I, it's hard, it was hard for me to identify or to pin down a like, precise percentage. Because I was working so, I was working so much with a kind of humanities methodology of just wanting to find as many archival records as I could find. So I was never confident that I had found everybody um, and, and, and the amount of information I could find would range from a couple little notes. I was talking with Morris about this, about uh, one of his ancestors. I think the, the first person to go abroad for migration is a, a woman named Elvira Stevens Barney. Um, but all I could find was like, a couple little notes about, like, that she went to Wheaton in the 1860s and, you know, and, to, and was in the medical profession. And so, like, so I, I could count her as, yes, she, she and came back. Um, so that the numbers are hard to present but i was surprised by how few stories i found of people leaving for good you i I, you would almost expect more um but there are some stories uh, that were used as cautionary tales there are some stories that um you know of people who who left and said good riddance i don't don't want to go home but it was it was rarer than i thought it would be and in terms of Break, that's, that's so open to interpretation. I think we could all have a conversation about whether Brigham Young's original purposes were achieved or original goals were achieved. I think that's in the eye of the beholder. I think it's a remarkable history. I think it went beyond what he imagined it could be. And whether, I, th- I think it depends on what version of Brigham you get in some ways. Like there's the, there's the kind of fearful, um, you know, uh, protectionist version of Brigham Young, and then there's the version of Brigham Young that's open to everything that's out there. It says bring it all here, gather it all. So I think, I'd, I think that's, there's a, a lot of room for interpretation on that really, really good question. Yeah? Well, yeah. I think yeah. the
1: corollary yeah. to George is that yeah. uh, I think some stayed back East yeah. and almost created yeah. colonies. And I can think of yeah. Irene and Fletcher. Yes. staying yep. In Princeton, and New Jersey, yep. And, yep. and creating a core of the church, but also making major contributions. Yeah. To scientific. And there's there's a real
2: right the you know multi history multi generational history now of uh, you know Mormon scholars in, in that Boston and Cambridge area going all the way back to the 1890s, mm-hmm. but we see it all the way to the present day. That there's yeah, yeah there are these pockets now of, of places where. People have found community in Chicago and yeah, Boston, Cambridge, um yeah. okay, New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey. I love Jersey. I love Jersey. Yes, I have family there. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tough place to drive in the winter, but Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Tom.
0: Yeah. Uh, how did the students find they were treated as regards oh. to being associated with polygamy? Yeah. polygamy? yeah. Some of them might have been yep. polygamists but yep. they came from polygamists. Yep families,
2: yep. so they find this to be a really difficult problem. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, how, how was it? I, like yeah, I I love the stories. There, there's there's a, a range of experiences, especially in the early material, obviously, uh, so in the first couple of chapters. So you have some um, like the the women I talked to, like Alice Reynolds Ship, for instance, who comes who's, who's part of uh, you know, plural marriage, um, situation. Uh, <laughs> um, sh- basically what they try to do is th- th- there's a diverse way of, there are diverse ways of handling it, but basically what most of them try to do is not talk about it. Uh, and, and basically Pat, we, we talked today in educational circles about, um, students who are from minority groups passing as part of the dominant, like if they're able to pass as part of the dominant group. Um, and so often we think of it in terms of um, racial identity and sexual orientation, like can you pass, maybe maybe your orientation is a same sex orientation, but you you can pass, as big, like you don't have to, like people don't have to know, um, or maybe racially you can pass as part of the dominant group if you're light skinned enough or something like that. And Mormons could, at this time, could pass as monogamous, right? (laughs) They could, you know, people didn't ask too many questions, Um, and so there are amazing stories in the book about this, about, like, uh, Joseph Marion Tanner, um, Albert Tanner's father, if you know Albert Tanner at all. Um, Marion Tanner, uh, you know, picked one of his wives to go with him to Harvard and left another one, like in upstate New York with some relatives, and we have some of the correspondence of the wife, and, ups- and she's writing to her brother who's studying at the University of Michigan, and she's really graciously saying, "This has been his dream forever. I, I'm I, I'm sad that I have to go through another siege of two years of widowhood, which means because he had just been on a mission, and now he's going now he's going to Cambridge to go to law school with." The first wife, you know, and right, you know, and it's it's just amazing correspondence, amazing stories. And then you have at the University of Michigan, you have some of the second generation <gasps> with, like the children of polygamous households, um, and some of them will uh, will basically like they'll be they'll be having debates in the law school about polygamy and whether polygamy should be illegal. This is before the Reynolds decision, just a few years before the Reynolds decision in the Supreme Court. Um, so, they're debating, they're, they're kind of having mock Supreme Court debates, basically, about the legality of polygamy, and some of the Mormon students are saying, polygamy has been nothing but, you know, nothing but trouble for my family, and I I, I would love to see us get rid of it. I would love to see it be made illegal. Um, it's been horrible for my mother and for me, and, you know, and so there's a whole range of Ideas, and that's one of the things I love about that group of students at the Uni- University of Michigan in the 1880s. Is I mean, some of they're fighting with each other constantly. I, you know, I shouldn't enjoy that. It's kind of voyeuristic. It's kind of, but it's, but it's just it's again, it shows how human they are, right? It shows. Um, so there's Benjamin Clough is trying to get everybody to come to sacrament meetings, and you know, people are they're being young people. That some of them don't show up, and they'd rather smoke instead of coming to sacrament meeting. Uh, and, and, you know, and some of them are putting holes in the wall in the house that they've rented because they're just being boys, you know, and, and just driving Benjamin Clough crazy. Uh, and, you know, and the other people are really devout. Other people are really serious, saying we've got to hold on to the faith and, and be re- of use when we go back home. And um, so it, and what what brought that to mind was uh, there was one student who was about 20 at the time, a, a kid named Gary Banscuno, and um who would argue with people at the dinner table and say, you know, John Taylor's a coward for, you know, President Taylor's a coward for hiding underground. He should just he should take his medicine and like and some, like turn himself in and take it like a man. And Benjamin Clough is, you know, it's just, it's just apoplectic. You know, he can't believe that he's got a kid, he's got to deal with this kid who's so disrespectful and, and doesn't have proper respect for church authorities. And, you know, it's just so the attitudes toward polygamy are all Across the continuum, um, front and but I think the most common one, especially for people who are involved in those relationships, is like, just try to uh, just just try to be to, to come off as normal. And the, the the what they the best outcome for that is when often if they're interacting with non- Mormons, who say you know now that I've gotten to know you, I really I think differently about the church, and I can see I can see why you would, but you know you would be part of it and why it means so much to you um, I'm trying to think there' was another case where uh, the, the church the first presidency got worried in the 1890s that that one of the um, one of the male students was going to get found out for having multiple wives because I think he had, multiple wives visit him at different times. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, and and the church this was before statehood, this is this, this is after the manifesto of eighteen ninety and before eighteen ninety six statehood. And they are like, you gotta you gotta stop. You gotta right? you're gonna like, I know you might be lonely for a while, but like, <laughs> like you just you gotta keep up appearances until right. Um, so amazing stories in the book about you know, all that. So I hope that helps. But it's yeah. all over. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Other, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh,
0: sorry. You're describing yeah. a lot of expensive education. Mm. And I know a few of them. Few, especially the women that went yeah. to medical school. I think they were sponsored. Yes. To go back.
2: Yes. Did you, Sometimes in, by relief society. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Did
0: you run into? uh through your research, were
2: you able to find out how how they paid for some of this? Did most of them pay yeah. for their own education? Yeah. Uh, you know, quite a lot. So a lot of them had family support, kind of that approach. But with the women, it's really interesting to see. Because, um, yeah, so sometimes Re- the Relief Society was offering crucial financial support. Sometimes it was, like, it felt like touch and go and week to week or term to term you know, about whether the money was going to be there for them to continue their education. So sometimes the Relief Society really pitched in and saved the day for some of these early medical students. Um, but sometimes, you know, I talked about some of the tensions in the the sister-wives relationships, but there are some incredible stories of, you know, Ellis, Ellis Reynolds' ship was but she tells a story about being down to her last dollar in Philadelphia. And all of a sudden, money comes from, um, I think it was Lizzie. So not even one of the ones who was able to pursue higher education. But money, but this money that saved her education came out of the blue from one of the sister wives. That I think one of the ones that she had been kind of resentful of. And you know, <laughs> it's just an incredible story. Like here, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you this so that you can finish your education. And so, but often, like institutionally, um, yeah, the the support often came from from parents or from relief society um, organizations like that. But yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't something available to everybody. Higher education was a lot more affordable than than it is now in terms of real income. Um, so they weren't going into a, a ton of debt uh, typically. But, and then uh, later on, I didn't talk about this later, by the early 20th century, you get a, you get a fund um, from the church that support, it's controversial, but there's a fund that gets established instead of a pension fund. Right, pension funds were being debated in the early 20th century about whether they should be offered to workers as a, as a safety net for retirement. Um, and the church decides we're going to give, we'll give loans to people who want to study outside the region maybe even if it's just for a summer at the University of Chicago or something so they can be better trained to teach. And, and we're going to have all the teachers in the church school system pitch in and, and then they can take out of it if they want to go. And it was controversial because not everybody wanted to take advantage of it. So they, they were paying into something that they weren't necessarily benefiting from. And some people said, you, you know, we should have a pension instead of this, this fund for people to go <coughs> study elsewhere. Uh, but they did that for a while. They did a church education fund uh, for a while that, that a fair number of people took advantage of. So. Uh,
1: yeah. So I'm not even sure how to quite frame it. Yeah, work. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, even today you see in the Mormon culture yeah. a nervousness about sending their kids to anywhere
2: other than BYB for that to get an advanced mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. because it's not safe to send them there. But somehow the education they're going to get outside of that enclave is going to undermine their faith. Yeah.
1: Was there pushback at any point during all this in that same way? Yeah. Was there evidence within the students yeah. that it was causing them a faith crisis? Yeah. And then a third part of my yeah. question is yeah, yeah.
2: what did they Michigan wasn't exactly a hotbed of Mormonism, I assume, right. in those days. So right. What did they do yeah. for religious communities while they were studying? It? Great, great question. So I think I think they're all connected in the sense of it's not it's not just a concern about what's going to happen intellectually to students, but it's it's a cultural it's yeah it's about culture and community like is 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 my my child going to feel at home? Um, and it, uh, Brigham Young is worried about this when his son, Willard, goes to West Point. You know, he, he knows like, people just customarily routinely smoke, swear. You know, it's just, it's, it's a culture of masculinity um, that, that was pretty, that, that ran counter to the ways that, that Brigham Young and his, his peers had tried to raise young men. Uh, so were, um, there's, a great, there's a great correspondence, a series of letters from West Point, Um, or uh, uh, about a decade after Willard Young went there. But uh, it's right in 1885, I think, It's saying, you know, be careful about sending your kids to places like West Point because they, you know, they smoke and they drink. And they engage in a brutal contest called football. (laughs) You know, it's like, like, you heard it here first. You know, so so there's, yeah, there's this worry that the the surrounding culture is going to be toxic. Um, and it's, and it's um, going to be poisonous um, so right and so the, the, the Mormon community in Michigan is built basically from the ground up um, but they, they have enough people and but there are other cases uh, you know and Benjamin Clough gets kind of authorized or kind of delegated by Carl Mazur and by President Taylor to oversee the religious community in Michigan so it's not that but that's a special situation I mean there um, a lot of them like Ellis Reynolds ship and Romania Pratt were together for a time and boarded together, which meant a lot to them. But like uh, James Talmadge was on his own, basically. Um, they, there was a cohort at Harvard, kind of the, the good, a good group that could worship together. Um, but yeah, often, often they were, you know, they were kind of, um, yeah. Uh, and Chicago managed to create a pretty good community. Um, but then, along with community, came um, some internal tension and strife too. So, some, sometimes um, people would have fights about about scientific evolution. Um, in Chicago, uh, people talked about there being real tension um, on the part of people in different disciplines. So, like people studying law sometimes would just not be able to see eye to eye with people who were studying theology and religion. Just um, you know, and I think this is part of the J. Reuben Clark tension, too. The Re- we were talking about this at dinner as well, that J. Reuben Clark, I think, saw all of his elite education as a way of strengthening him to be a good defender of the faith. Um, whereas, um, students in the humanities tended to raise more kind of foundational, critical questions about, like, do do we think, I mean, this, this is where I mean, the rubber hits the road, um, basically, they're starting to ask questions in the 20th century about do you think Joseph Smith really saw what he says he saw? Or was it kind of more of a more of a vision in the sense of a hallucination? Um, or did like, do you think? And so this, people are starting to raise these questions in the first decade of the 20th century. And this, the church, church authorities are getting nervous enough about it that they start creating um, test, like multiple choice tests um, to, to make sure like, that, that students are getting the right idea about church documents. So basically there are questions like, true or false, Joseph Smith objectively saw what he saw, right? You know? <laughs> and and the, the right answer is true, right? You know, he, he objectively saw it. It wasn't just a subjective private experience. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I hope I'm answering your questions. Let's see. The the concerns have to do with the the education as well as the surrounding culture. Um, And I think that's probably a concern. That's a a concern that I see um, echoed among students that I have uh, at at my school. It's a boarding school. And um, students uh, who have parents who have raised them in a religious tradition in a deep way say, you now you're, you're just going to go and you're going to be living with people from all over the world, uh, uh, most of whom don't share your religious background, don't share your religious commitments. Um, there, there are optimistic ways to look at that and say, that's what a great opportunity to meet all these people. Uh, but, uh, kind of fear is natural, uh, that, you know, you're, you're going to be surrounded by people who might, who might even mock your principle. You know, I, th- I think, I think it's more common for me, in my teaching to, to see, I mean, we're, we're at a really interesting moment where I think religious literacy is so low among my students who are all, now, almost all of them have been born in the 21st century. Um, religious literacy is very low and skepticism about religion is really high. And it just, um, that, but basically there's, there's kind of an adolescent 21st century idea that like, religion is not for thinking people that's not, I would say that's the prevailing attitude among my students. They're not generally obnoxious about it, but it's just, they're sort of surprised if I tell, if I tell them I go to church. You know? <laughs> like how can you, how does that work? Is there, is their default question? Uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's part of this culture as well is, is that, um, the, the fear that, that you'll be misunderstood at best and ridiculed at worst. Uh, and, and to the point where you'll you'll want to abandon what we've taught you in order to fit in. And to, so I think that's a perennial concern. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. All right. That, Thank, you. Do, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, Please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.